Welcome to Contagious Thinking, coming to you from the MRC, University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. This week we're discussing sepsis, a major complication of infection which can lead to multiple organ failure and death. The only treatments for sepsis are indirect drugs that target the cause of infection. Fine when good drugs are available, but this isn't the case for all pathogens. In this episode, Connor and I are joined by Dr Kenny Bailey from the University of Edinburgh, who explains how it could be patients' own DNA which holds the key to targeting sepsis directly. Connor Bamford. I'm a postdoc in the lab of John McLaughlin looking at evolution of interferons and immunity. And I'm Jack Hurst. I'm a PhD student in the lab of Ed Hutchinson working on morphology of influenza virus. Hi, pleased to meet you both. I'm, I'm Ken Bailey. I'm a Wellcome Trust Intermediate Clinical Fellow uh, based at the Roslyn Institute in the University of Edinburgh and a consultant in intensive care medicine at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Okay, cool. So that's quite different from what we've usually had. Um, so maybe we can start at the start. Where were you born? Well, I was born in Paisley, <laughs> okay, right. uh, which I, uh, I've, I've moved a long way from my roots, it's only, only 40 miles to yeah, yeah. Edinburgh, but it's a very uh, substantial cultural uh, distance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then did you go to school locally? or uh, I went to school in Glasgow, uh, and then I, I moved away from Glasgow uh, when I was 17, and I've lived in uh, Edinburgh for most of the rest of that time. Okay. I, did, I did come back to Glasgow for two years to work as a medical trainee in the old western infirmary ah, which I'm very cool. sad to yeah, see not, not there anymore yeah big pile of rubble um, which is better would you say Glasgow no. <laughs> well obviously I'll just give you a straight answer to that question because <laughs> that could have no consequences for me <laughs> so my family live in Glasgow uh, and well my uh, parents and sister uh, and my wife and children live in Edinburgh so I'm going to say nothing yes <laughs> um, so then you went to study medicine then that's right, I went to study medicine in, in Edinburgh. I did an intercalated degree in physiology. Okay. Uh, I was very interested in cardiorespiratory physiology and organs that move and okay. um, all the equations that, that demonstrate how they work. Right. Um, and uh, I'm quite sad that most of that, that sort of really kind of macro physiology work was all finished by very clever people in the 20th century. So, ah, none so of no more research. Okay. And then I did um, for... From when I was a medical student, um, I led a research expedition to high altitude to study uh, adaptation to high altitude in humans. Okay. Uh, so for, for actually since then, um, I've had an interest in altitude medicine, but for quite a long time after that, after medical school, I was particularly interested in adaptation to hypoxia and uh, okay. in the physiology of altitude. Okay. Um, but uh, so that was that was sort of in my spare time alongside medical training. Uh, and then I uh, was very lucky to be appointed to the first intake of a training scheme called ECAT, Edinburgh Clinical Academic Track, um, which was a really, um, really well-planned training scheme yeah. for clinical <coughs> academics. Okay. Uh, and uh, there I got really great mentorship from some very uh, experienced and insightful people who directed me to um, uh, to, to go to you know, the frontier of, a, of an aspect of science that was different from what I had any experience of before. Um, so I went to do functional genomics in David Hume's lab in the Rosslyn Institute. Okay. Um, and then the idea is that I would you know, get as close as I could to the, to the coalface of, of that area and yeah. then later in my career apply it back to my clinical interest, okay, right. um, which is, which is you know, the, the trajectory that I've followed since then. Yeah. Oh, so were you interested in research like from the get-go? Because we have a lot of clinicians who kind of grow into it over time, sort of through the 
clinical work? Yeah, I was actually. I got hooked during my BSc on research. Mm -hmm. I, I think um, I, I remember thinking it was the first time I really felt like I'd learned the truth about a topic rather than oh, yeah. everything <laughs> that you get taught. The first yeah. couple of years of, of the old medical curriculum used to mm -hmm. be very kind of didactic and also a little bit mm -hmm. out of date and quite dumbed down um, mm -hmm. explanations of science. And then when, when I got to actually, you know, really immersing myself in the raw research papers, I found out what we really knew and, and what was actually uh, yeah, true. Yes, that's very cool. Yeah. And then, so what was the topic of your PhD? Yeah. So uh, it was focused on statistical genetics uh, applied to um, immune biology and macrophages. Um, so my my uh, the, the bit of the work that I did in that three years that I wrote up for my PhD was developing bioinformatics tools to explain uh, or to understand data sets that I generated in um, uh, macrophage cell culture experiments. Okay. So I uh, uh, developed methods to um, uh, to uh, understand the results of um, genome-wide association studies that I've studied, you know, find genetic variants that are associated with a particular disease. Um, the, the sort of problem that I was interested in, still am, uh, is that you, when you do a genome-wide study, you identify lots of variants across the genome you have no idea what any of them do. Most mm -hmm. of them, the vast majority of them, are not even in protein coding genes. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I wanted to uh, find tools that would help us to actually infer something that, that could be useful about the biology of the disease from okay. um, from that information. Okay. So this wasn't virus driven. This this aspect. So uh, about two months into my PhD, so my PhD was interested. I, I was interested in, in sepsis. I still am interested mm -hmm. in sepsis, which is a, a much broader mm -hmm. problem than. The, my, most of my research focus has been influenza, okay. which is a, 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 a subset of sepsis by definition. So sepsis okay. is a really broad clinical syndrome that, that boils down to any severe infection that is making you very, very sick, so making one okay. of your organs fail. Okay. Um, so um, uh, that's that's been my sort of broad clinical interest for a very long time. Mm. It's a really... Um, fascinating problem and one that I think that we should be able to solve because the, the, the problem that we see in critical care medicine is people literally dying over a period of days or longer because of the host immune response to an infection. We see that with influenza mm -hmm. uh, and we see it with um, lots of other infections and actually the problem with the word sepsis is we see the exact same thing happening in patients who don't have an infection but have a sterile injury such as major trauma or a a serious burn or pancreatitis. It's still a, an inflammatory response. It's a it's a response. It's an immune res, immune mediated response, okay. remote from the site of injury, that causes organs to fail. So, to me, that can only be explained by immune cells signalling to each other. Uh, now, obviously, that's an extremely complicated process because of the way that it evolved. Um, so, it's not going to be easy to to alter it. But we know it must be possible to alter it because it happens differently in some people compared to others. So, okay. so if we only we understood why, we could maybe change it. So we don't have drugs to do that already? So no, sort of extremely, There's lots of like steroid type drugs and uh, yes. like NSAIDs and things to mediate inflammation. Right? So they they uh, are classes of drugs that alter inflammatory processes, but they <coughs> do not um, uh, alter the host response of infection. Two infections, sorry, to, to improve survival. So steroids have a very narrow role in the management of severe 
sepsis. And we're getting better at understanding where to use them through really great work by several groups around the world doing huge clinical trials. Um, but we don't have um, drugs that will modulate the host immune response to, to prevent organ injury in infection. Okay. And then when these organs are failing because of the um, immune response, like mechanically what's actually happening to the organ? So in your lung, uh, the um, air spaces in the lung where gas exchange happens fill up with uh, inflammatory cells, mostly neutrophils, but okay. under the direction of alveolar macrophages and tissue macrophages. Uh, the, um, there, there's a buildup of fluid and uh, in, in cases where there's infection present, bacteria or um, yeah. other organisms. Uh, and that um, firstly directly prevents the gas from getting across the membrane into the blood or out mm -hmm. of the blood in the case of carbon dioxide. Um, and it uh, causes um, stiffening of the, um, of the lung tissue, which makes it harder to get gas into it. And that means you have to use higher pressures to get the gas in and that in itself actually directly causes more inflammation in other parts of the lung that haven't been already affected. Mm -hmm. So you can end up with very <coughs> severe um, inflammation across okay. both lungs, making it very difficult to get oxygen into the patient's blood. So then if this is driven by an infection, why can't we just target that um, virus or bacteria directly? Yeah. That, that's what works. Obviously, it doesn't always work mm -hmm. uh, and it won't work forever because the Antimicrobial agents are are you know, in, increasingly there. There is bacterial resistance to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. In the case of influenza, you really are already, you're shooting into the mist. It, it yeah. evolves before you're very high. It's mm -hmm. in the course of treating a single patient that yeah. the virus can evolve resistance to the antiviral agent. Uh, so that I mean that is the tried and tested approach. That is what has ha worked already. Um, but it doesn't stop my patients uh, from becoming very sick and in some cases dying. So it's not it's not the solution. We have effective antimicrobials, so we can still people still die of sepsis even when they're infected with a bug for which we've got an antibiotic that works. Okay. Um, so so we need to work out how to stop that from happening. And that, that's going to mean targeting the host. And of course targeting the host has, has the other advantage that is much it's it's uh, both intuitively and there is some evidence, direct evidence, it's much harder for the bugs to evolve mm -hmm. to evade a therapy that's targeting the host, not the bug. Then you can get more side effects because you're targeting yeah. a yeah. Okay, so that's the difference. An insanely complex system. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it's right, complexity and redundancy are are the the cardinal features of it, yeah. and it's because of how it's evolved. Because the the bugs have been changing all the time, so our immune systems had to evolve to um, to cope with a constantly moving target, and the bugs are directly interfering in the function of the immune system. So mm -hmm. they, you know, there are, there are lots of examples. I've started collecting them of of viruses of bacteria that directly interfere with the host immune system to change its function to promote you know, their own ends you know, survival okay. of the virus or the bacteria. So if you've got all these sort of different causes of sepsis that you see day to day, what is it about influenza that makes you interested in following that one up? Or is that just a sort of a convenient model? Uh, influenza is an excellent model for uh, understanding these processes. I think it would be very naive to think that um, uh, that that there aren't going to be pathogen-specific components to the, to the biology of this disease process. So, so of course, uh, we're going to have to understand pathogens one by one. I think there are also general mechanisms, I mean, but, but I think modulating them, certainly uh, the experience so far of, of decades of study is that that's very, very difficult. So I think, I think um, 
keeping the um, uh, keeping the model simple by going one pathogen at a time is a pretty mm-hmm. logical strategy. And influenza is a very big problem for humanity. It's a constant threat of, of you know, a very serious pandemic could arise at, at any time. And um, even without a pandemic every winter, um, intense care units all across the country are overflowing with otherwise well people who are desperately sick with influenza. The mortality is quite quite significant every year. Yeah, cool. So as you said, it's a very complex system you're trying to understand. So how do you sort of start essentially understanding so, it? So the so the, the kind of fundamental approach, so, uh, so I, use, I do mostly computational biology now and I use a couple of wet lab techniques to, um, um, to both drive computational discovery and then test hypotheses that are predicted by the computational work. So they are um, uh, transcriptomic studies and, and genomics and um, I then I can have, have tools to test hypotheses using CRISPR genome editing. Um, so um, the, the sort of most um, uh, direct explanation of, of the approach that, that I think is, is the most tractable one is uh, if we can find genetic variants that make some people survive when other people die, then we've identified a bit of biology that is, by definition, uh, alters the function of the complex system that we're talking about. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's going to be easy to then modulate that biology in the people who are sick and make yeah. their biology more like the people who did better, but we would be way ahead of where we are now if we could find those levers. So so really my, the focus of my research is identifying those levers that will alter the outcome of a complex system in a way that benefits the patient. Okay, cool. So presumably it's that sort of intel taking uh, DNA samples from people who are sick with influenza. Yeah, yeah so we're doing that. with a study called Genomic that I started uh, a few years ago now. It's so now recruiting all over Scotland. Uh, we um, are about to start recruiting in England. Um, it's been uh, generously supported uh, by the Wellcome Trust as part of my intermediate fellowship uh, and uh, it enables us to gather DNA from critically ill people with uh, uh, phenotypes that might be genetic. So that includes influenza, pneumonia um, and a handful of other phenotypes that are of, of genetic interest. So we have DNA coming into our lab from all over the country just now. The trouble is that the phenotypes that were interesting, the really interesting so I suppose it's not, it's not so much interesting, it's really tractable phenotypes. So, so the best way, the best comparison to draw to find genes that make people get sick with flu would be a really clean population where they don't have any other risk factors for flu and you compare them to the rest, to the rest of the population um, and you find out what, what, what it, you, you've enriched for genetic variants because they, were, they didn't have other risk factors. Um, that's quite rare. So thankfully it is relatively unusual for completely healthy people to end up desperately sick with flu. It does happen every year in such that we are recruiting them in, in reasonable numbers, but it will take quite a long time to have very large numbers. So I think we'll have to um, accomplish that by extending the study over a larger mm-hmm. geographical area. Um, and that's, that's one of the nice things about genomics is it, it requires you to play nicely with other investigators because no one yeah. can do this stuff on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. So presumably it'd also be your benefit to find people who got flu but weren't sick with it, but surely those people are going to be really hard to find because they won't report to the hospital or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. So firstly, they're hard to find. So I agree, it's yeah. that, that is 
maybe even, I suppose, is it a stronger phenotype? I don't know. So it, it's certainly a really interesting phenotype. If you have people who are like super resistant to flu, but yeah, they don't, they don't come and see me. Um, it's not just that though, it, it's actually normal to be resistant to flu. So um, there, there was a really nice study by Elizabeth Miller in the last pandemic where she um, or her team uh, took blood samples from people every week. 10,000 people followed my every single week during the 2009 pandemic and um, checked for antibodies to the new virus. So they identified people who'd been exposed to the new virus and they could prove that they'd been exposed to the, the new pandemic influenza. And then they said, so how do you feel this week? And 80, well, between 60 and 80% of the previously healthy people in, in uh, that study reported no symptoms at all. So the normal response to even that brand new scary influenza virus was to not even notice that you had it. But the same, you know, the, the unfortunate people who, all, who looked just the same, looked completely pre- previously healthy, one in 10,000 ended up on life support machines and, and many of them died. So that's a really small number. So I guess you're looking for a really rare variant. It's a rare phenotype, yeah. And, yeah. and it's um, so it doesn't have to be a rare, uh, rare variant. But you're right; it's a rare phenotype. Okay. Um, so it it could be um, combination of common variants. Um, uh, what we have found quite often in infectious diseases is uh, relatively rare variants with very strong effects, which gives me hope that we'll be able to identify them using relatively small populations. So it's it's it possible a... that we'll be able to make quite important discoveries with relatively small numbers of people okay. in, in this field. Of course, we want to get the really big numbers mm-hmm. to, to really understand the biology. So yeah, presumably it's also quite plausible if you say you've got a pathway and there's lots of different mutations within that pathway that it'll be sort of sets of mutations and things that you're going to be looking for rather than like a nice individual one that will tell you exactly why some people get sick and some don't. Yeah. So is that not really hard to look for because suddenly you've got to sort of, I guess, exponentially increase the sort of computing power you'd need to sort of track them down? Well, you could use that to narrow the search space as well. Okay. If, you, if you start with the assumption that that's likely to happen, um, you, you would need to know the pathway in order to do that, which I suppose is the, really, the real beauty of genetics is it takes you to bits of biology that no one's ever studied before. It teaches you things that are important to look at that we just don't happen to have looked at yet. Um, so uh, you, could, um, you could guess that genes that let's say they don't belong to the same pathway as such, we don't already know what the pathway is, but genes that have important biological features in common are more likely to be associated with the same disease. I think that's a reasonable assumption. In fact, mm-hmm. I've produced evidence that, that demonstrates that that's the case. So you can use that. Um, the biological feature that I've worked on in particular is, are those genes turned on and off in the same cell types? Mm-hmm. So if you... Imagine that when a gene turns a gene, sorry, when a cell turns a gene on, it doesn't do so at random. It does so for some reason that it's evolved mm-hmm. to do that in those conditions. Itself, it turns you know a whole group of genes on in a given set of conditions. That's also non-random. So you can look at those expression patterns, which which cell types mm-hmm. and which conditions are the genes turned on in, um, and yeah. then ask um, for for the results of my genetic study. Um, firstly, do the really significant genes, the really significant hits from my genetic study, do they group together in little groups of genes mm-hmm. that share expression profiles? And then uh, maybe there, there are a whole lot of, of, um, of variants that haven't 
actually made it to the threshold for being significant, but are actually real. Mm-hmm. It's just that the trouble is that in the same rank of of um, uh, of significance testing, uh, there's a whole lot of genes that are actually mm-hmm. just noise. Mm-hmm. So you can uh, you can ask if I if I look a little deeper into the results of my genetic study, um, are there genes that share really closely expression profiles with mm-hmm. the real genes, ones that we know are significant, mm-hmm. and and by so doing rescue some some new hits from the genetic study and also understand the biology of the disease better. Oh. Are there any examples of a variant with an infectious disease that has given people access you know, to manipulate it, so it's given people a drug target? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, so, so firstly, the field is new, right? So, it's, I mean, to, to have a drug target already would be pretty amazing, given we only sequenced the genome in 2001. Although, we, I mean, there are examples of that as well. So, there's um, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors are now approved by the FDA, and that gene was identified in the first studies of uh, cardiovascular disease that's associated with hypercholesterolemia. Mm-hmm. Um, there are examples of um, genes that have been identified in genetic studies of infectious disease that have led to therapies. Uh, one is CCR5 mutations, which confer protection against HIV. Mm-hmm. There was a patient cured of HIV yeah. about a decade ago um, following a bone marrow transplant from a CCR5 mutant donor. Okay. So yes, there are examples, but it's a little early. To Certainly in, in my field, we really have very little mm-hmm. genetic work already done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be a bit early to actually have a drug. Give me time. Yeah, <laughs> we'll come back in 10 years. Um, so I think just to finish it up before someone else comes in, um, what if you weren't a scientist or a clinician, what would you be? Oh, um, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to fly a fighter jet. Um, I don't think it's fair to say I actually would be doing that if I wasn't <laughs> a scientist or a clinician. I, who knows? I guess we're all random chance leads you to wherever you end up, doesn't it? Yeah, so you could be doing any number of other things. But okay. I mean, I think I think I've got the best job in the world. I think the, the um, uh, academic medicine gives you the, the best of uh, clinical medicine and, and the possibility to explore completely new things as well. That's the right answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the right answer is astronaut, but fighter jet. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Connor and Kenny for joining me this episode. As always, you can find our previous content on influenza over at cvrblog.myportfolio.com. Email us at cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com, or tweet us at contagiousthinking. Join us next week where we'll be joined by Dr. Liz Wright to hear about how advances in electron microscopy can be used to pick apart the structures of viruses like RSV, influenza, and HIV.